Hi everyone, welcome back to the Playbridge podcast. This is your host, Ruffin. Today I'm chatting with Avni Barman. She's the co-founder and CEO of Gen She, a community of over 16,000 women in startups with the mission to connect 1 billion Gen Z women to opportunities in tech. She first got started after working in CS with big tech and realizing just how few women break into the space. Avni started hosting makeathons, the first at Snapchat headquarters, which attracted women from across the country. Avni bootstrapped the business for several years and recently completed her first fundraise. P.S. She is currently hiring across marketing and engineering, so make sure to check out that opportunity to work with her and her amazing team. So excited to share, so let's get started. Hi, Avni. Welcome to the show. So excited to reconnect with you and have you on today. First, how's it going? Where are you calling in from? Good. I'm calling in from San Francisco. Super excited to be here and chat. Amazing. Jumping right into things. So at USC, you were accepted into the School of Arts, Technology, and Business Innovation. It's a super competitive program that accepts just 22 students per class. One, why did you choose that field of study and what were your biggest learnings from that program? Yeah, wow, this is going so back. I haven't thought of this in a while. Um, But yeah, I think for me, I always wanted to be a founder. I think entrepreneurship was always something I thought about. I grew up in Silicon Valley around all of it. So it was something my friend's parents were talking about. We talked about that in high school. I definitely feel very privileged and grateful to have grown up in the area. So I was like, oh, this is definitely what I want to do. I like feel the energy already. Um, I actually didn't even know if I wanted to go to college or I, I would apply to a bunch of colleges, but brainlessly, like I did not know what I wanted to do. I had no direction. I would randomly do it because I was in a college preparatory high school where they required you to fly to college. I was like, let me just do that. But I think honestly, I don't know if I would have even gone or would have at least been intentional about picking the school unless I had gone into the Ivan Young Academy. Um, For me, that was the perfect uh, path for me to go into all things I was interested at that time without being having to choose. And I think the focus of that program itself was on building companies, which was how I wanted to spend my time. Very different than most programs, which is why I was not super excited about being in college. So you launched Gen Shi, your company, during school. Um, and to my understanding, it was a part of a college assignment at USC, yes. part of a course. So what was the course? What was the assignment? And what kind of motivated you to launch Genshi? Yes. So a big reason why I also wanted to join this uh, program was because for four years, most of the curriculum was building companies. And then your fourth year, they actually allocated I think it's like eight units or or just like a lot of units. I I don't remember the exact number to just go out and build um, a company that you wanted to continue working on after college. That was some collection of all your learnings of all the previous businesses you had started in college. Um, For me, I knew that I needed to do something that I was super, super passionate about and I needed to do it for a problem that I felt very deeply if I wanted to spend a full eight units obsessed with it and potentially even after college at that time um, that was obviously on the table Um, so 
at that point, I had just exited my like first big tech internship and I was the only young woman on my team, which I think for me was very shocking. I think I thought that the women in tech issue was real, but I don't think I really thought it was that real that even at a company that has millions of dollars and unlimited resources, they still failed at this and I still felt uh, very isolated um, the entire internship. Don't get me wrong. I loved my summer and I still made a ton of friends, but they were like other women in marketing and recruiting on other teams where I had to like, go out of my way to find. And there was a lot of friction through that process. And what really deeply stung was at the end of the internship, um, my manager basically told me that he didn't really see me as a good fit on the team and that I didn't spend enough time with my direct coworkers on my team. That really stung because I definitely felt that I wasn't trying hard, but it wasn't, I wasn't not trying hard intentionally. It, there wasn't a natural place for me to fit in when we were doing non-work things. Like lunches weren't that fun on um, off days. They wanted to play basketball or play FIFA or drink. And I think at that time I wasn't smart enough to realize it was probably worth doing things that I didn't like for to like play the politics of work I'm like so young at that time right like I'm literally in college um so I was like just optimizing for what felt natural and where I felt safe and where I had fun right it's normal to want to have fun I worked so hard to get to that point I wanted to also enjoy it while working hard on the job so that was like the main reason I realized that I didn't have a natural community of other like female peers in tech around me, specifically those who were highly ambitious, very deeply technical, interested in the same things as I potentially also wanted to start companies like me. This felt like a very hard to find niche persona, even though I was at like a school like USC where everyone is so creative, so smart, so ambitious. And I was in a selective program where um, they focused on lines. I still deeply struggled with this. Um, so that's kind of where I realized it was very obvious that I needed to build a company that solved this problem. And that's basically how it started. I had a assignment and I had this like deep passion. And it just it just happened. Uh, can you share like which team you were on though? Like Yes, yes, yes. I was a software engineer. Um wait, actually I can't share what team I'm on because no, no that worries. would be awesome. It was like, <laughs> okay, okay. You, could, you could say that I was a software engineering intern. Totally fair. Um, so you had this experience. You go back to school to work on Jin Shi. Once you started doing other your own research, did you find that other women were having these similar experiences at big tech companies and just in tech in general? I think at that time, I was really focused on just generally almost creating more people like me. I think at that th time, I thought it would actually be easier to nurture a greater ecosystem of other ambitious women in tech and entrepreneurship rather than like trying to find Steedle and Haystack persona. So I actually really focused on nurturing young talent to learn these skills. I thought that that was when I learned it. I learned it at, at a time when I was super impressionable and forming my core interests about the world. That was a very like lucky, privileged place for me to be because of where I grew up and what school I went to. So I wanted to make that uh, make that knowledge and education just be more natural and like table stakes for like all young women. So I actually started off thinking about this problem. And I've thought about this problem in like a million different ways, which will probably along the course of the podcast will like 
talk about so many different angles to view this, but I think one of the big problems was that. And so I started by just bringing education through conferences um, that we called makeathons um, that would bring this um, to young women when they're you know, forming their core interests in a way that was super fun and was delivered to them in like a way they wanted to engage with that material. Um, and that came in the form of these IRL like events that were very Instagrammable that had like really cool speakers come that you could meet them and meet each other. Tell us one. Did you come up with the name Makeathon and where was and when was the first Makeathon and like what went into producing that event? Yeah, so the first Makeathon was at Snap headquarters in LA. Obviously, at that time, I was at USC in LA. So that felt like the obvious best place to do it. So it felt very natural. Um, I don't think I don't want to take credit for the term Makeathon. I didn't coin it. I can't tell you where I got it from. I think it was just this moment where I realized that calling it a conference wouldn't be good enough because these young girls were building projects over the course of those two days. And I think a conference is more listening versus hands-on, so it didn't feel accurate. And I was scared to call it a hackathon because I think a lot of young women are really intimidated by this and think that a hackathon is where you code. And yes, there was a lot of people coding at the event, but that you, you can start a business without the first few steps being actually coding it. So I wanted to also not make it feel intimidating and only for engineers. So I didn't want to call it a hackathon. And it was like, well, makeathon is like a in between. <laughs> so that's how we landed on that. And I, I definitely feel like I was inspired by it somewhere. Can't remember where, but what went into that? So I guess so August was when the semester started around the time when I started thinking about this, but I was full-time recruiting for a full-time job at that point um, as a product manager. That was a, that in itself was a full-time job, just recruiting. So I didn't actually fully think about what I wanted to build and how I wanted to build it till after I got my job in late October. So I spent a lot of November and December. This was like more of the downtime of like holidays and finals. I definitely call finals downtime. I'm lucky to have called call finals downtime because they were very low pressure and low stress. Specifically for the program I was in, it was all the other times where it was like very high pressure, high stress. Um, so I had like downtime to really deeply reflect on this. So come January, new semester, I'm like, okay, what am I going to do? And once I figured out that I wanted to throw an event, I was like, okay, well, the way that the timeline works for these young high schoolers is we don't want to clash with like SAT and APs and their finals. So we have to do this at least by March before their or during their spring break. So yeah, I have three months to just throw this event. So it was like very, very intense from like ideation to actually execution. And I thought, I'm not exactly sure what my solution needs to be like long term and how to scale it. But I know that if I can bring 150 high schoolers in a room and throw all my ideas out them, there's no better way to like validate that I'm thinking about this the right way. So I was just like, okay, whatever it takes to do this. I put a date on the calendar. I told the venue, this is a date it's happening to make it real. And then I was like, all right, well, now I have two and a half months to do this. I remember the date very distinctly. It was like March 11th. Uh, it was International Women's Day at that that time. So it was like the perfect date as well. And I was like, all right, Jan 1st, I have basically two and a half months to pull this off. And 
that in itself created structure of like, okay, if I have this much time, I need to get speakers by this time, I need to get sponsors by this time, I need to sell events, uh, tickets by this time. And that, yeah, it was crazy. The second we launched it, it basically sold out in like two and a half weeks. How did you attract people to the event? And also, how did you convince like speakers to come? Who were the speakers at that first event? Yeah, I don't want to undersell how hard me and my team worked, but I think it was one of those magic moments where we were solving a really deep need and a deep problem where the issue was mostly awareness. But the second someone heard about it, it was an immediate sell. Like they wanted to do it. They wanted their kids to do it. The kid was excited, but it was like this win-win situation where the parent wanted it and the kid wanted it. And that rarely happens, right? Um, so I think it was mostly just awareness. Like how do we get this in the hands of the right people. And then once they have it, they're going to want to come. And the way that we did that was we um, basically did these, at that time, like Instagram was a thing. It was not TikTok or Snapchat, really. Um, so we had these Instagram story templates. And on these uh, Instagram story templates, we asked people like, literally like very simple questions, like what company, what like what's the dream company you want to build? And like, who do you want to be when you grow up? Just like very simple things. And I think, this also directly proves a big need is like they really wanted like they've all thinking about what they want to be and they were all thinking about potentially starting a company they had that inner fire in them but they didn't know if their friends had that fire and they didn't know how to talk about their friends and it gave like this really easy way for them to talk about it with their friends and open that conversation so all of a sudden everyone started posting these story templates of answering this question because they were excited about talking about it and then on the story template obviously is John Chi and they would go learn more about us and find out about the event like oh this is the perfect place where I can actually take this thing that I'm thinking about and actually learn about it and maybe build something so cool I wish I had a makeathon during high school so fun me too <laughs> uh, were most of the students that came to that first one from the LA area and then do you know if any of the businesses that women created during that event have continued on to today? Yes. So actually, shockingly enough, not everyone was from the uh, SoCal area. A lot of people actually flew out for this event. Wow. That's so cool. To learn that. It was very cool. People all the way from like the East Coast came um, all over the West Coast, like random places. And I think it was generally one of those like surreal moments where I was like, things were happening faster than I could even like grasp. Um, so I think when that happened, especially at the end of the event, um, made me realize that I needed to bring this to a lot more places because it needed to increase access and, get, and bring this to a lot more geographies. And there was also this like huge demand after like a ton, I got like my inbox flooded of people from all over the world being like, bring this here, bring this here. Like, people who couldn't make it or couldn't fly out. So that was a very surreal, exciting moment um, to realize that it wasn't just like an, the LA bubble I was solving for. This was like a universal problem that like young women feel. So cool. So you did the makeathon, and then your full-time job graduation was right around the corner. Did you ever consider going full-time on Genshi? And like, what was your thought process at that point? Oh, yeah, it was so hard. I dabbled between taking this job or continuing this. 
so deeply. I actually took a three month solo trip to Spain just to reflect on this. I'm very dramatic. And so I was like, oh, let's just, I can't solve this problem. Let's just exasperate it. Just like isolate myself in a country I had never been to with a language I don't speak. So drama of me. But um, basically at the end of it, I realized that I couldn't actually pick. I was genuinely excited about both. And I genuinely felt like both were going to be really incredible learning experiences for me. I also worked so hard to get this job. And this was a job that I'd wanted for like three years. I had basically worked for this goal and felt like if I didn't take it, I wouldn't be able to close a chapter of my life. I knew that Genshi was not a chapter I was going to close anytime soon, but I felt like uh, if I got that experience, I could potentially close a chapter there. So it felt like the right thing to do at that time was actually just try both for a bit, which actually worked pretty well. Mm, well, I was like, not really a person. I was like basically doing two full-time jobs. Um, but I, I think what, where things could have gotten really bad was if I had continued this, um, really throwing conferences and having a job. But what actually happened six months into my job and my second conference is the pandemic. So that was like the world hitting a wall and everything taking a pause, right? I can't really throw a conference during a pandemic. So that was also a moment that was like a forceful stop as well for like the momentum I was going on, which was I was running straight to the wall at that point. I was working so hard. Yeah. So tell me, how has Genshi expanded while you're working full time? I know you've brought it to high schools and colleges across the campus. Um, you posted more makeathons. Tell me what has happened since you graduated. Yeah, so during the pandemic, when me and the rest of the world were really figuring out what was going on and what were the next steps of ourselves in the world and our career, um, decided to actually host a virtual event. I didn't really want to lose momentum there. And I felt like it would be a unique, different challenge than hosting an IRL event. That was actually so different, so much to the point where I probably unclear if I will do that again. Like that was one of the hardest things I've done. You would think that an, an IRL one would be harder. No, virtual is actually so much harder for so many other reasons that I'm not going to go on a tangent on. Um, but through that process, we had, we were able to open up like the event to anybody in the world, even people without financial means, even like geographically, there was like no limits. That was very exciting. We had 7,000 people come to this event, which was wow something that I couldn't even imagine that I could do at that time. So it was very validating for me that I was building something very meaningful for the world. And in order to keep this mission alive and going at all these places it touched we launched um our clubs program where anyone can actually start a genshi chapter on their campus high school and college so we have 96 chapters of genshi all around the world now that um we can we do, we're not super involved in it the whole point of it is that hey you can use a lot of our resources and materials and you have the, the support of the team to do things a lot easier like get speakers get money get materials get that branding to talk about it and recruit a lot of members but this is actually a great 
way for you to take initiative and build something brand new without the risk and pressure associated with it and really get that leadership experience on your resume and then obviously impact so many other young women in your community. Um, so we also try to be very hands-off with that process. We, um, we're just one email away or one call away to any of the club leaders and we give them a ton of resources and materials to start, but they're, they, they're all like very independent, totally killing it. I'm like, I don't even, I barely know what's going on. There's so many chapters to keep track of. What are some of the schools that have chapters and where are they? Yes. Great question. Let me look at this. <laughs> um, yeah. So we have like a chapter in Australia. We have a chapter in India, Pakistan, Netherlands. Um, we have a lot, obviously, in uh, U.S. I would say that we have a ton of chapters in specifically in like I would say like five to ten in California five to ten in Texas and we have some in New York so it's been um really exciting to see this expand so fast and I you can also tell that a lot of the community is also coming from the places that I have lived in because the places I have lived in I've been able to bring more of the IRL component to that community. So it, it goes to show that how important it is for these club chapters to exist and for them to create their own IRL Genshi community um, where they're located. Obviously, I cannot be everywhere. I'm one person. Um, but me really cultivating really strong Genshi community, the places I've lived have really proved out the importance of that and the importance of taking something online and really bringing it in person is what I've yeah been recently realizing especially like i feel like we're finally at the like post pandemic yes. era of like we can can sometimes pretend this pandemic didn't happen definitely i think there's value in virtual digital communities but there's so much value in a combination of in-person events as well i think everyone is really craving that especially after covid yeah and i think that's one of the biggest challenges i have right now as a founder is I've really deeply done the IRL. I've very deeply done the virtual and online. Now is really like the moment I have where how do I do the best job as bridging the gap of the two and maintaining a fine balance where we keep our digital community alive because it's what um, helps us expand. But we can continue to nurture the IRL in a sustainable way because that's really where we're able to like bring that like deep connection, deep impact between our community members. Definitely. So you mentioned money and financing. In the early days, how were you funding some of these big makeathons? Was it sponsors or putting your own money in? How did you think about that? Yes. So all sponsors, uh, very gracious for our sponsors for helping us fund the event. Um, everything from like venue. So the first event um, at Snap headquarters, the venue and the food was all funded by them. Same with their second event with like Lyft, um, venue and food was covered by them. And that's actually um, the bulk of the costs for actually running event. You, It's funny because there's so many other things that go into it, but they're actually not as expensive. Food is so expensive, but you have to feed people who come, right? It's like a basic thing. But um, all the other things like speaker costs, logistics, um, like prototyping materials, like posters all these like smaller things um 
we would work with outside sponsors and they it would everything from in-kind donations so this is literally a company being like hey we're gonna donate like 500 pieces of product for you to do your thing rather than you having to go purchase it um and that way they get their name out to our community or it's everything from like fiscal sponsorships like hey let's write we'll write you a check and like just mention your company on um your signage that's cool. like we help support you very smart and do you encourage the chapters on like high school and college campuses to like take that same strategy and go out and get their own brand sponsors yes yeah, so we have given them a whole playbook on how to do that and we give it our connections as well so it's easy for them to get those sponsors i think the main thing that is the biggest challenge in getting sponsorship is the reason why these companies want to sponsor is because they want to get tax exempt status on fat money. And so if you don't have like a nonprofit ID to get that tax exempt status, it's very difficult to land that sponsorship and getting that can take six months to a year. There's a lot of legal paperwork that's very confusing that goes into it. So we give our club chapters the ability to use our um, brand to get that. So it's it be, can be as easy as like one email. Very smart. So you kind of mentioned this, but you've now gone full time on Jen Shi. Walk us through your decision process of why you left your full time role in big tech and how things have evolved since. Yes, I actually talk about this a lot on my TikTok of like why I left. I think the standard response people expect is like, oh, I just, I was burnt out. It sucked, all these things. But it's like, no, I actually had the best job in the world. And I literally loved my job, loved my peers. And it was like such amazing work-life balance. Like I basically ran Genshi the entire time I was in this full-time job. So I clearly had very good um, relationship with my manager and the workload as well. I think for me, the second that I realized that I had learned everything that I had needed to learn in that position for, for my career goals, right? Not there's, there's always plenty to learn wherever you are, right? Specifically for what I wanted. Once I had realized that I was done with that, I knew that it was my time to leave. I deeply believe that you can't really do anything exceptional in life unless you go 100 10% in it and obviously I wasn't going 110% in my job and my company it's basically virtually impossible for one person to go 100% in two things like I'm not 200% of a person so I knew that if I if I really deeply cared about Chen Chi and I wanted to take it to the next level of growth and really expand our impact the only way to do that was for me to quit my job and actually go full-time with it. And what is your big vision and your plan for growth and impact for Gen Xi? Yeah, so we actually spun out an adjacent for-profit venture and I ended up raising money as well because um, a lot of what uh, we're excited about doing is building out a career platform for all Gen Z women worldwide who want to break into tech. And the first place that we have started is by helping young women get like really cool jobs at these tech startups. One thing that I realized was a big reason that I was the only young woman on my team um, at this big tech internship was because ultimately you can pour in millions of dollars through diversity and recruitment initiatives um, when your company is big, but that doesn't change the core culture. 
core culture starts from founding team members, from early employees. And unless core culture is like gender equitable, you can't change the whole company. You have to change core culture first. And the problem is core culture is formed at these really early days when most of the companies, all men, the tech founders are usually guys. They, the very normal, natural human thing to do is to hire your friends in your network, right? Nothing against like their decisions to do that. I, I basically do that too for my company. I hire women, right? But the natural thing when like these, these big tech startups is like most of these people are guys, right? So I realized that one, we have to help them hire more female talent earlier in the process from day one if we want them when they become a big company to not have to deal with diversity as a high cost probably unsolvable challenge at that time um but the main problem is it's not actually that we don't naturally exist in their immediate networks because that can be solved very easily with like someone making an, any intention to expanding outside of that i think the main problem is like the like a young woman who is excited about joining that startup and has the skills to do the job will probably actually say no to that offer. Why? Because why would this young woman want to go join this like 10 person all male Eng team? They're just not going to want to do that. And I personally wouldn't want to do that. In fact, I didn't do that. Um, Cause that's just not fun for anyone, right? And like human desire is to be around peers and people that are similar to you that you can like resonate with. So what we're doing at Gen Chi is we're helping young women make that hard decision because if they don't do it, the next woman can't join and the next woman from there can't join. And we will never actually end up reaching gender equity in tech. And we're saying, hey, if you accept this offer, we will give you access to a private community of other top female talent, mentorship, professional development, a bunch of things you do get at these bigger tech companies. So find that with us at Gen Chi instead of that company for the short term, short term until they can actually get to a point where they're equitable, which is like, if you're 10 people, it only takes 10 more people. If you're 5,000 people getting to 5,000 more women in tech is obviously infinitely more challenging. So the earlier we work at a company, actually the easier it is for them to reach those goals. So that's what we're doing today, but we have, sorry, this is a, this is a very long answer to your question. That's amazing. I'm better at saying this um, shorter, but the big vision really is we, want to actually um, provide this community of like-minded peers at every step of your career, right? Landing a job at a top tech startup out of grad is like a very specific moment in time of your entire career. And we want to support our members um, everywhere from when the first time they even consider what they want their career to be to their first internship and then after even they land their first job their second job and then from there when they're ready to actually advance in their careers and build the companies of tomorrow together which i know that a lot of top female talent they are thinking about that and it's also why they want to work at startups because they want to see how that company is built from zero to one to eventually go build their own company when they're ready to do that how can Janchi actually be their first backers connect them with capital and expertise and ultimately bring the whole thing full circle by helping them build out their first teams that are balanced and diverse and gender equitable. Incredible. Well, one massive congrats on the spinoff and on your fundraise. So exciting. Thank you. Thank you. Can you share anything around your experience fundraising, um, how you targeted investors, um, how much you raised? 
what round <laughs> of funding you raised? I raised a pre-seed um, of Congrats. mostly like, thank you, mostly angels. We wanted like really awesome people on our cap table, especially people who were very mission aligned with what we're building because I think what's different about most venture-backed companies is probably profit and scale is their first priority. But genuinely, I want people on our cap table who understand that actually impact is my first priority and profit and capital is my second priority. I do understand that with more profit and capital, I can make more impact. And so that's why I actually deeply believe that it's still in the VC's best interest to want to support this. Um, The experience raising as a first time female founder, let's go into that one. (laughs) Um, Oh boy. It was definitely, I know I said that, um, yeah, I it was actually one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life. Like that was really, really tough. I think the first thing is like I don't actually have a network of investors that I know. I'm not in this space and I'm 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 young and I'm inexperienced. I'm also doing the thing that sounds like charity on paper. Let's be real. Unless you deeply understand like our path to profitability and our path to scale, which um takes a little bit of explaining because on paper this seems like just a community of women right it is hard for people to see that up front and most of the time if you want to get an investor's intention you need to have that like solid epic one-liner they will literally trash your email so i kind of hacked this i started this like cold um email campaign on using one of those automation tools and i did the thing they say not to do is i gathered lists of (laughs) investors and i just sent out a million cold emails and they say don't do this when you're fundraising because it doesn't go very far investors don't really reach out uh, respond to cold emails they want warm intros that is still true if you have other founders in your network who've raised really good rounds definitely get that warm intro and especially if you know an investors definitely reach out to the people you know first i didn't have any of that like i'm not going to not do this just because i don't have that network In retrospect, I probably should have spent more time networking and building those circles before I go and raise my first round. But at that moment, momentum was high. And in order to get to the next stage, we need money. So I was like, you know what, this is what makes sense for the company, I'm going to do it the the hard way. And it worked. Um, We had enough like metrics, and we had a large enough community. And I think we had a mission that was exciting enough that uh, we were able to actually get Um, a bunch of attention through cold emails and I was raising um, not in the bull market I was raising in the bear market like before Thanksgiving like this is a couple months ago so that was also like really tough to go like I think we had the right numbers and we had something exciting and different enough to like get the first call pretty easily I think going from getting the call to actually landing the check was very difficult there was a huge drop of it and i and i know a big reason is because a lot of people were very hesitant to give up money like right before the recession the crash of everything which we're not going to go into that it's a very depressing topic but lucky to say we like somehow like made it through i I deeply believe in the law of large numbers which is if you just reach out to enough people if you try enough times like you will get the outcome you need so yeah that's that's the short summary of how that happened but it was very hard I don't want to um make it seem like that was a piece of cake (laughs) yeah I mean crazy environment to fundraise already extremely difficult to be a female founder fundraising especially during this time so 
massive, massive congrats. Thank you. Um, how many investors do you think you emailed initially? And then from there, like how many pitches and calls mm. did you do? And how did you actually like weed down to finding and figuring out like who would actually be the right people to have on your cap table? Great question. Um, I think I emailed about a couple hundred. Um, yeah, it was a pretty big number. Definitely a couple hundred. I I didn't like just email any investor. I still did my research to make sure that the investor was someone who matched whose thesis matched to like what we were building and also someone who had some sort of interest in like women in tech and like closing the gender gap so that's that basically narrowed down to a couple hundred because the reality is most people actually say they're interested in that but do they what you are they really most are actually not so then i had around i would say like 40 to 50 calls so i had a pretty good conversion rate i would say like i would say i had I would say probably would not like did not expect such a high conversion rate. Um, maybe showed a really good cold email. I don't know. <laughs> um, well, that was going to be my next question. Yeah. What was in your email or any tips for cold mm-hmm. outreach and what you think was effective in your email? Yeah, I think I kept it really short, like two sentences and very metric. Um, a lot of metrics in those two sentences. Um, so I really just talked about our numbers. I didn't try to convince them what I was building was cool or exciting. I was just like, this is the status of what we're at. And this is what we're building. Interested? Then we can chat. I'm raising. Basically, like that was the whole email. Um, so I think those are like the two main things, right? I just said facts, like said things like you couldn't argue with. And I made it extremely small. And obviously, like, subject line, I don't remember what it was at all, but I was also intentional about that. I can look at it, maybe, but I think I basically just summarized the two sentences in a few words in the subject line. So, at the minimum, if they didn't read the email, they still pretty much got in the subject line where if they were interested, they would open the email. It wasn't that I was missing people who were interested who just didn't even open the email, which I think happens a lot with cold emails, as the, the subject line will be bad. And so... Someone who could have been interested actually ends up not opening that email. Yeah. Short and sweet to the point. Very effective always. Yes. So now that you've closed this pre-seed round of funding, anything exciting coming up for the next year or, you know, anything you want to plug and share for Jin Shi? Yes. Um, I think one of the next big things that we want to tackle is just generally increasing the pool of female talent. I think the sad reality of this situation is we're realistically not going to reach scale with this current product of, you know, matching talent with companies with just the amount of talent that exists in the world today. And so the next big thing that I want to do is actually increase the top of funnel of talent that exists and so bridging the gap of actually educating young women but lots to come here I don't want to reveal too much but really trying to be intentional about what that educational experience looks like to closing the gap of the skills you need to land these jobs because I don't want it to feel redundant to school school is not really built with a great experience in mind and it's not really built to 
help you build like actual tangible industry skills. And I also really want to focus on, you know, uniquely like what do women enjoy? What do they need in their learning experience that maybe the world and like technology today maybe isn't super um, aligned with? I think one of the like biggest reasons why TikTok I think resonates so well and more with women is because the medium at which that information is delivered makes a lot of sense for how we intuitively like to receive information like I think women tend to gravitate towards things that are our aesthetic engaging in video and also um we're more creative in general and I think that TikTok is like an amazing example to actually look at as a medium that is um where you can learn I'm in but it's tailored to you know the uh, a way that maybe we we want to very frictionless like learn so that is like the most I will hint at what we are building next um well totally agree about TikTok I think all the learnings on there are just so approachable and like easy to engage with so also obviously a big fan well very very excited to see um what you're up to over the next year or so and the future of gen she as we start to wrap things up can you share a female founder investor or leader who inspires you and a little bit about why i think sarah do is um someone who totally inspires me and it's it's she's obviously much younger than me and i think the the main thing that i really really like admire about her is her conviction in who she is and what she has meant to do for the world that she literally dropped out of harvard to go and do it and she put that conviction she had in herself and her company in her business and that is fully the reason why that succeeded right it's like confidence in herself and her decision because you do not casually drop out of college you have to have insane confidence in what you're doing to do that and confidence is not something that like exists or not exists in a person you have to manifest that for yourself everyone has the ability and potential to have as much confidence as she did in the moment so it's like she basically manifested and created the reality that she wanted to see because for her she just deeply believed it and i don't i don't know her personally right so i i'm not saying she felt this way but it to me as someone who took 3 years to go take the plunge of something i knew i wanted to do my whole life i really like respect and admire like her doing that um so early in her career and hey it totally paid off she's so brilliant and successful now and i i can't wait to see all the things she does in her career Completely agree. I think that's something so interesting about her story because I think back to my time in college and I was nowhere at a place of having that level of confidence to go out and create something on my own. It took me personally a little bit longer and that's also totally okay. But her story is yes. um, so amazing. And then finally, where can people find you? Where can people find Jen Shi? Yeah, so you can find me on TikTok at your tech girly a uh, classic username. <laughs> um, and you can find um, Generation Chi on Instagram or TikTok at gen.chi, or you can find us on our website, generationchi.co, if you're interested in applying to our program or joining the community. All that information will be on our website. Amazing. And all of those links will be in the description of the podcast. Thank you so much for joining. Awesome. It was so Thank fun you for to having see me. you.
Yeah, no, it was so great to do this. I feel like I was able to reflect and think about a lot of things I do that I don't think about very often, which is ironic. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Play Bridge podcast. If you enjoyed the show, make sure to rate, review, and subscribe. And for more updates, make sure to follow us on social at Bridge Club. That's at B-R-Y-D-G-E-C-L-U-B at Bridge Club on Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube.